Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. <laughs> Camaro, you're a name that comes up quite a bit on our show, and your your voice is heard on almost every episode. <laughs> How are you this evening? I'm doing fantastic, man. This is pretty interesting to do a conversation about this because, as everybody knows, I'm not the biggest grunge guy. You know, far from it. I'm I'm the dude in 1990 whenever that was at a bar and the club was playing and it was a band called the little blue crunchy things. And I thought, man, this band sucks. You know, they just look like normal dudes up there. And I got up, I was drunk and I stood up on my stool and I yelled, I still love poison and I don't care who knows. Needless to say, I, I did not get laid that night, but that's so, so the grunge thing is, is not what you, you know, when you look at Aaron Camaro, you don't think, Oh yeah, that dude's really into the Pearl jam. But even before but, grunge, before grunge though, dudes who were really into poison were kind of sad. Who, who? I wasn't sad. I felt great. No, no, no. I don't mean I was in a they were depressed. Mood all I mean, the time. I mean, people looked at them and said, oh, "I just feel bad for that guy." <laughs> right before they stole their girlfriend. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean. I didn't have a girlfriend until at grunge, you know, really. Nothing serious. So I Oh didn't yeah, have because grunge grunge kinda lowered the, the <laughs> playing field, really. Yeah, grunge because made it you, easier you for guys like me, man. One, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Once grunge took over, you didn't have to be good looking. Yeah. You know, you didn't you didn't have to smell good. You know, none of these things mattered anymore. Like before then, you had to look good. You had to care about yourself, take care of your body, you know, uh, have a great personality. All these things that came into the courting and, and beginnings of relationships of, of different levels. But once grunge came, grunge came in, it really leveled the playing field where now everybody can get laid because they all smell terrible. <laughs> and, and you kind of step, well, first of all, Valid point. We we've we've come we stumbled across a lot of things that grunge kind of helped that we we never really was never really openly discussed. And now we'll add uh, made it easy for ugly stinky dudes to have sex. Um, exactly, and, and also ugly stinky ladies. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose. I, I think it was probably just as easy for them before and after. Maybe it's a Minnesota thing. G- yeah, yeah. Give me a break. 
<laughs> First shot fired. All right. So yeah, like uh, I, I didn't. You know what? I know I'm upset. I was like, I'm not going to prepare any Wisconsin jokes. You know what I mean? No. I mean, you've already lost most of your teeth. You don't need your reputation tarnished too. So, but uh, anyway. Well, and and to be completely honest with you, Baco, I'm really kind of surprised that you're even doing this kind of a show, being yeah. that it celebrates Seattle so much. Because I know a little something about you know interstate, inner city rivalries. Mm-hmm. Between Wisconsin and Minnesota, but I also noticed that there's a pretty good, you know, kind of a rivalry between like Minneapolis, St. Paul and the city of Seattle. So I'm kind of impressed to see that you're doing this kind of show. Um, you know, there's a lot of influence from bands. Uh, there, a lot of pre-grunge definitely comes from the Twin Cities. You know, the replacements, uh, even Soul Asylum, who actually found their fame after, you know, the 92, 90, 91, 92 kind of explosion of grunge. Uh, but they were, you know, plugging away since 86, 87 or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I mentioned their placements, who's your due? Uh, those are the big ones, but the suburbs were popping around. That's kind of a testament, I think, of why you're doing this. You are brown-nosing Seattle like most Minnesotans do. <laughs> Excuse me? You know, somebody from Minnesota, you yeah. know, they strive to be like Seattle, you know? You, you, but in Seattle, when you're deeply depressed, you say... I'm feeling Minnesota, so I, I don't see the love back and forth. I see a rivalry mm. forming between think, Minnesota and Washington here. I think you're trying to start some shit, man, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I ain't, it ain't happening. Not on, the, not on my fucking show, man. Well, uh, well before we get into everything, then, I just want to say I know that Minnesota's been going through some tough times right now, yeah. and I heard that there's a possibility that the police force in Minnesota may be defunded completely. Kind of across the country know, that's being talked about. Well, and I just want you to know that, you know, whatever you do, you can't put the Minnesota Vikings in charge of protecting the city. You know why? (laughs) Here we go. Why? Because they're the most notorious chokers of all. I heard that. Oh, boy. That is, uh, that is, that's some pretty harsh humor there, man. That's dark. You deserve it for trying to brown nose to Seattle so much. Uh, oh my God! Is this, is this payback to, for all the shit stick, I've talked over the years? Damn is, straight! Is, is that stick what this to is? Your original rivalries. Don't be trying to branch out into others. You know, when one team wins all the time, it's not a rivalry. <laughs> but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Seattle definitely had a much uh, bigger uh, impact culturally and and also sales. Pretty much every measurable category from influence on, but uh, it wouldn't have happened without these seedy little uh, pre-grungers snark that you got from Minnesota, baby. That's true. You uh, always can count on that. I was surprised that you wanted to get into this record. Uh, you know, I, I kind of threw a general feeler out in, in a group to see just what what podcasters even wanted to do this, and that kind of filled up a good chunk of the list, but... The record Mad Season Above was one that I had a hard time really finding the right person for. Now, one thing I wanted to, to make sure I had was somebody who liked the record, you know what I mean, that, that got into it. it. It just This record is probably the first one on the list that I'm, I really dug at the, at the moment it was released. Uh, and it, there's a bunch coming up. So the fact that it was you, because just like you said, you the, the, these preconceived notions. And I, by the way, you're not an easy guy to pigeonhole now that I know you a little better. But... I just, you know, you didn't mention anything when I threw the feeler out there uh, about any of the artists, and w- I kind of went to you as a flyer at the last minute. I was like, you know, I gotta find somebody. Did you? And you're, you were right away. Bam! I want it. 
Well, you you came on our show and right. did a quarantine session with us, and then afterwards you said, "Hey, hey, quick before we hang up, would you happen to be interested in doing the Mad Season album with me?" And I was like, "Correct, Fuck yeah, dude, let's do it. I love that album." Right on, yeah. And I was like, "Mostly," I was like, "Boom." Well, first of all, I mean, I've always like having you on the show and talking to you, hanging out, whatever. But the fact that yeah, you're hitting well, one I of the records that, uh, that means a lot to me. I don't me. know if you it's heard. I don't know if you heard or not, but uh, recently I was awarded with this huge honor. There's this thing called Chartable, and I don't know if you <laughs> heard about hear this, this yes. but there's a category on there that says, you know, podcaster who has appeared on more other podcasts than anybody else. And I made the top 10 just based on laugh tracks and actual appearances on Cobras and Fire related shows. <laughs> awesome. It's a true honor. Yeah. You know, as much as I like you, you're basically on every episode. Right behind Robert Plant, I think. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, getting back to what we're talking about here, come Coming in at number 18 on the list of uh, the greatest grunge albums of all time, which we're counting down, is Mad Season Above with, of course, my special guest, Aaron Camaro, <laughs> who I've already introduced. But anyway, did you get this record right when it came out, I guess, would be my first question. That's what I was trying to think about when we talked about doing this. And I was like, you know, I just listened to this album not too long ago. Try and remember the first time I ever heard it or how it ever came into my, you know, circle of what I listened mm-hmm. to because this is pretty far out from what I'm into, you know. And so I thought about it, I thought about it. I can't remember. For the life of me, I don't remember how this album came into my life. If it was something I picked up new, if I'm gonna guess, if I'm gonna guess, it was probably because I liked Alice in Chains. It's gotta be. And so I picked this up and you know, this is a weird album, and we'll get yeah. into all the details of it and stuff, but it's it hit me in a way that's made me hang on to it all these years and, you know, is still something I go back to for the most part. You know, a lot of these songs have definitely made it onto my iPod. I picked it up on the payday after it came out, which was a Thursday, meaning that I bought this on March 16th, 1995. I hadn't heard anything about the record prior because even the videos were were released after the album was already out and it it was just kind of in the record store and that cover i'm like that kind of looks like lane staley in that painting and then i flip it around and sure enough you know it's a lane staley project so i I just bought it on spec uh and and took it home and i'll back up a little bit late 94 a friend of mine passed away he died in a plane crash and um uh he his death kind of I was kind of coasting at this point. I really didn't have any direction of what I was doing. I I dropped out of college. I'd moved back home with dad. I was just working at a print uh, company. So, so many things have changed. I no longer live with my dad. Other than that, everything's the same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I, I hadn't really, I, I hadn't started a band. I hadn't really done anything productive since, I, you know, since college, which at this point was almost two years. And his death, because he, he died pretty young and he really hadn't gotten anywhere in his life. And as much as I loved him, it really got me thinking about my own freaking path. Yeah. Um, and so there was a while there that I was just wallowing in like, what the fuck am I going to do? And this record came along kind of in that time. 
And so you had completely embraced the grunge culture by that point. Well, yeah, I embraced the grunge culture pretty much from the get-go. I, I've covered that in quite a few of the episodes. But this record resonated with me, not not so much in its intended message, but it, it, I almost in emotion it connected with me. Um, the, the tone and, and, and the way it talked. Because at the time, I was pretty melancholic and trying to decide what I was going to do with the rest of my fucking life. I mean, I had no direction. And, you know, I eventually got things on track and came up with the plan. And I would think for the most part, things worked out not exactly the way I asked for, but but my life has been a positive move forward for the most part since that time. You know, we all have setbacks and personal tragedies and things that we have to deal with. But this record was there at a time when I probably needed it. You know what I mean? I I don't want to overstate it in the sense that like I wasn't dealing with a lot of drug addiction, I wasn't suicidal, things of that nature, but I was definitely not happy with where I was. And emotionally, this album, I don't know, it almost uplifted me, even though that's kind of not the intended message here. But uh, so, yeah, I gravitated toward it. Now, I'll tell you this, a funny story about the release of this. Now, a, a buddy of mine, uh, we're still close friends. I talk about him on the show once in a while. His name is Wilson. Uh, we go back to high school. Uh, we are the best man at each other's wedding, the blah, 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 all that good stuff. Uh, now, we were very up, competitive. Wilson? Yeah, what up, Wilson? We were very competitive about, like, you know, getting things and, you know, buying things, that kind of nature, and, you know, in a playful way. But uh, also, we, we paid very close attention to each other and this kind of bullshit stuff. Yeah, I, t- I told him about this when I got it, and he's like, yeah, he hadn't heard about it either. So I did the whole, like, huh, oh, you didn't know about this? Yeah, I got it the day it came out. <laughs> well, I didn't get it the day it came out, Aaron. I got it two days later because I got paid two days later. Oh, it's circumstance. Unfortunately, I left the receipt in my car, and he found it the next time he was in my car. I'm like, and he literally called me on my bullshit. Oh, he's like, wow. He's looking at it, reading the date. He's like, I thought you said you got this the day it came out. I mean, <laughs> so fuck you, Wilson. It was two days later. Close enough. Wow. That's yeah, awesome. I, I'm going to give that one to him because I definitely was being that guy. He was like, I got the day it came out. Ugh. You did it. Ugh, I'm a bigger fan. Um, I never had an experience quite like that, but, you know, <laughs> oh, not man. many of us probably do. But I had friends like that who would probably, you know, along the same ways. Maybe if it was Kiss, you know, it would have been something like that, but yeah, probably okay. not Mad Season. Yeah. <laughs> but when you talk about it. When you when you talk about emotion, man, that's what this whole album is. It's an emotional album. Like I said, I'm a I'm a Kiss fan. I like Black Sabbath. You know, I like Iron Maiden, and I like Motley Crue, and I like Guns and Roses. And this album doesn't really fit in with the most of the stuff that I normally like. You know, I like party rock stuff that's uplifting mm-hmm. and fun. But I can definitely see where you're coming from in this because most of this album is kind of a cautionary tale. If you really look at it, you know, there's a lot of good advice in this whole album, you know, that somebody (laughs) could take. And maybe, maybe, for example, a song was about heroin, you know, but you could take that in your life and look at those lyrics and go, you know what? That may be written about some crazy death drug, but it also applies to me in my rut that I'm in right now or this thing I'm having a problem with. And, you know, to go look at this and say, well, you know, there's other problems out there it could be a lot worse and you know this kind of offers some sort of <laughs> uh, i don't know i guess acceptance of the things that are going on in your life that aren't so great you know it's it's a great album for that you know you you can it hear really this is. you can listen to a lot of these lyrics and it 
it's okay and it's good to take a kind of a self inventory and go, okay, these are the things that are screwing up my life. These are the things that are going good. This is what I want. This is what I got. How do I get there? You know, and an album like this is just chock full of good advice to no matter what your situation is to maybe step out of it or hopefully step out of it or at least give you the spark of hope that you can step up out of it. Well, let's get into some of the album details. I uh, I sort of said it, but it was released on March 14th, 1995, my birthday. Um, oh, nice. It was recorded at uh, Bad Animals Studio in Seattle, Washington. The Bad Animals is, of course, a reference to Heart. They named a record that. But yeah, Anne and Nancy, I believe, own the studio, or at least one of the two did. Hmm. Clocks in at a whopping 55 minutes and 36 seconds for a 10-track re- record. That is pretty long. Um uh, produced by Brett Eliason, who, along with the drummer of the band, uh, Barrett Martin, both uh, declined to be interviewed for this project, believe it or not. I uh, reached out to them to see if they wanted to, I don't know, share some memories of the making of this record, and they declined. I would be willing to bet that that's because most people that probably come to them for this are looking for, hey, tell me stories about Lane being all jacked up on drugs. I wouldn't doubt it. And so they're probably a little shy to that. There is a, a very dark side to, I mean, the mortality of the people involved to this record that, of course, we'll, we'll touch upon as we get across this. Uh, right. Now, now, the album and, cover... Oh, and to kind of throw it, throw it back for a second to that is, you know, I, I mean, we've become pretty good friends with Toby Wright on the Decibel Geek yep. podcast. And just imagine the stories he could tell and the stories he's told us that we could never tell on the show. All right, a little bit about the band. Well, first I wanted to ask you about the cover. Now, the cover was painted by Lane. Um, when I saw that, that that picture of of it's basically a man and a woman just about to I don't know do some kind of public tongue kissing, making out. Yeah, yeah, but, and um, it's a very stark image that definitely you know gets your attention right away. I thought that was Lane right away, and it turns out I was right. Uh, yeah. Did you, did did you notice that with the album cover or not? I did not. I did never notice that with the album cover. Like I said, I don't really remember where this first came into my life, but mm-hmm. for the longest time, I think I read about it, you know, and then realized, oh shit, yeah, that may. I had no idea that was something that Lane painted. It was just, you know, just kind of a cool cover that stands out, black and white, you know, block yeah. picture. It's pretty cool. I like it. Well, a couple things about the band. Now that when they first formed, well. Let me get to the other members, maybe. Uh, Barrett Martin, who I mentioned, was the drummer. Uh, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam is on guitars. And John Baker Saunders is the bass player. Now, and what and what kind of wonderful, sunshining place did those two guys ever meet? Oh, just to here in Minnesota, don't you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, there you go. You know, they it comes uh, met right at back Hazleton, uh, which is a... Uh, it's a it's a pretty cool place. I mean, it's a drug and alcohol rehab center mm-hmm. here in Minnesota. It's over, I think it's up by Cannon Falls, not too far from Pachyderm Studios, Pachyderm Studio, where I know Nirvana recorded maybe Bleach or it was no 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 it was it was early sessions for uh, Nevermind. Uh, but yeah, uh, so yeah, so basically, tip the hat. Mike McCready uh, um, went there and he actually ran into John Baker Saunders, who is uh, basically a bass player in a ton of different bands. Um, yeah, wasn't he like a big blues guy, kind of like, uh, you know, a, a vir- not a virtuoso, but somebody that studied under the blues masters in Chicago or something like that? I know he was in um, a local band here called uh, the Lamont Cranston Band, but he did stuff a little more notable nationwide as well. I just don't have it in front of me. Um, 
But yeah, they they formed it with uh, the drummer Barrett, who is um, uh, from the band Skinyard, uh, who also featured a, a just a, a fairly recent guest for whatever, never mind, Jack and Dino, who's really more known as a producer, but he was in Skinyard. Uh, but oh, and Screaming Trees, he was a drummer for Screaming Trees. Uh, so the three of them started just kind of jamming, and at the time it was just an effort for McCready to kind of stay sober, and he decided that uh, he was going to be the savior for Lane Staley, and so they brought him into the project uh, to be, you know, the, the singer and, and lyricist for the what they were doing. And we all well, know, you know how that's the first thing they'll tell you if you're doing rehab or something like that. When you get out, they'll tell you, you know, you can't go play at the playground that you used to play at. You know, yeah. you got to stay away from the people that are still doing the things that you're trying to kick. You know, so what better situation to say, hey, you know, I got to get back to my life, but I can't do it under the terms I was doing it before. Yeah. Why not surround myself with other recently sober musicians and maybe, just maybe we can help each other out, you know, use this as a step back into a, a new reality for us without the drugs and alcohol, because that's the goal. And, you know, maybe something really good comes out of it. In this case, it's this album. Yeah, and uh, and I know Lane had clearly been in rehab a bunch of times. I think the total was 12 or 13 times his mother thought that he had been in rehab of some sort. So he, at this point in 90, oh, late 95, late, late 94, early 95, he had to have gone through some of it. Because, uh, you know, I mean, Alice in Chains really never toured after 93. Not, not a consistent, solid tour. So he was dealing with this shit for a while. Yeah. So maybe he was kind of brought in out of treatment and stuff. That I, I didn't see anything specifically to that note, but I will tell you this: he was not. Well, I should say. I, let me correct that. I know for a fact he wasn't sober during the recording of the record. Right. The, uh, yeah. The producer Brett Elias, and in that book that I mentioned from David De, uh, David DeSola, uh, he he goes on the record and saying that uh, I produced the record and I mixed the Mad Season album. Lane was not healthy. Heavy, heavy drug use. Such a sweet guy, such an amazing talent, one of the best singers I've ever ever recorded. He could just stand out there and light it up. The problem with, with him was getting him there. We were in cahoots with his roommate who'd help get Lane off the couch and point him in our direction. Wow. Lane, Lane would show up, and he'd go to the back bathroom and he'd be doing dope there, and you'd wait for hours before he was ready to come back out. And this is kind of the sad part. He was pretty open about it. I asked him, why? Why are you doing this to yourself? And he said, I'm either going to drink or I'm going to do dope. Drinking is harder on me. So as much as there might have been good intentions going into this, and who knows? I mean, the way this stuff is, this could be... I I I wouldn't put this on anybody, but but if you were the one like Mike McCready or one of those guys, you might feel some guilt over dragging him into the situation if he was unhealthy in hindsight. So I don't know if that story is told more out of like some kind of like I don't know personal cleansing or or some some guilt hanging around there. It just seems to me if you know this guy is openly doing drugs in the bathroom, you clearly aren't being a help. Is all I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, where then comes in the balance? You know, you you're, you maybe go into it with good intentions thinking, you know, this is a good situation for all of us. We're trying to recover. Maybe yeah. we can help Lane out too. But then it comes to the point where, okay, we're not helping Lane, so what do you do? Do you step in and go, all right, dude, you know, we tried to give you a chance and you're out of here. You're done. 
but then what about the album? You know, yeah. at that point, these guys need Lane Staley for this. You know, without <laughs> yeah, Lane really Staley, this ain't no big deal. If Mark Lanigan, as awesome as that dude is, if he would have sang lead vocals for this entire album, we wouldn't be talking about it because it wouldn't be on this list. Nope. Uh, it'd be a very different record, too. Let's, let's admit it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, we, we've kind of gotten in the muck a little bit. How about we actually get into the music? What do you say? Sounds good to me. That's why I'm here. I don't know a whole lot about the background of this music or the band or all that stuff. All I know is the songs. Well, the record opens up, Aaron, with Wake Up. Wake up, young man. It's time to wake up. Your love affair has got to go. addiction taking over i can't i don't know it's like you're trying to get it clean but it just doesn't seem to work even though you realize it's not the way to go you just keep going back to drugs what did you uh think of this tune spoiler alert this album is a concept album you didn't realize it (laughs) i think the whole grunge scene has one similar theme going throughout yeah right It, it seems to come up every episode and we are talking about heroin or you know cocaine or some kind of drug that's too bad, you know? If only they had fashion in their lives, mm. partying and having a good time, you know? The good times were gone by the 90s. As far as this song, you know, I love it when an album has just a face melter of a song to kick off the <laughs> album. Like The Elder. Right. Yeah, well, this kind of is like that. <laughs> <laughs> But honestly and seriously, man, this really is the perfect song to set the tone for this entire album, especially emotionally speaking. You know, agreed. This and is not a, a party ant. You're not. You're not fucking tapping a keg and throwing this thing in. No, and you're tapping a vein and tapping out. Exactly. So that's not what I normally would typically point to as this is an awesome rock song. But oh, I get you. I really love this song. You know, Lane's vocal delivery is, oh man, it's it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, it really is. Starts off kind of slow and soft, and then it gets to that point where it explodes into the awesome guitar solo, which is this kind of cool Jimi Hendrix-style thing. And man, these guys are whatever. It, It ain't like my grunge is not my thing, but this album and these artists, I mean... These guys had some kind of something lining up. This song, the way the guitar solo, and it sounds like some kind of 
Jimi Hendrix crank and thing, but the way it kind of like rises up out of the song and then goes into this crazy thing and then just kind of drops right back down into it. There's something magical going on in here. And, you know, the lyrics, well, holy shit, drugs are bad. <laughs> I listen to this song and go, man, I need to fucking quit smoking cigarettes. This is ridiculous. Lane has, and both Lane and Jerry had this, but they, they could kind of tell a pretty dark tale. Mm-hmm. In, in, but the, the melody they sang it with, it, it, it was almost beautiful. You know what I mean? It, it just, right. and, and this is a great... A great example of what I'm talking about. I mean, you get there's tons of it in Alice in Chains music and stuff. Lane or, or Jerry's done since uh, Lane's death, but even even his solo stuff is all I'm getting at. But yeah, I mean, uh, the, I don't know. We the, for ten long years. He, I wonder if he's just talking about. He's basically said going back. This is when I started to be a drug addict. Right. And now, ten years later, I'm there. I mean, um, dizzy and weakened by the haze. I don't know. I don't know. Pretty sad, man. Pretty sad. Um, but yeah, I you get a this, beautiful, awesome song out of it. It really is. And you know, you touched on the guitar solo. And as we go through this, you know, one thing that um I think keeps popping up is is just how important Mike McCready is to a lot of stuff. This mm. record, I think it has a lot of parallels to Temple of the Dog, where that record is Chris Cornell kind of writing about uh Andrew Wood's death. And this is yeah. Lane Staley basically writing almost an autobiographical album, very similar, where he's almost, you know, he's ex- writing about his own upcoming death. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. Especially now, you can look at it that way. I mean, it's just like the fact that that he was this self-aware of what was happening and what he was doing and how it was affecting him. You don't get a lot of drug addict stories like that. It's, you, you, you're more likely to get people like Ozzy or Keith Richards, you know, just saying, oh, fuck, I should be dead 10 times now. You know, I mean, and don't get me wrong, neither one is great, but I'm just saying th- the fact that you were able to turn it into art that will stand the test of time is, is amazing to me. Um, it, and it's also sad at the same time. It's just, it's very, it, this, it can be difficult with with how we know how his life turned out, that he was basically, this is him, you know, tipping his hat like, hey, people, by the way, I'm going to go basically whittle away to nothing until I'm dead. Yeah, and I'm damn near there now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't sound like he was, he definitely wasn't healthy while recording this, but... uh, But you say, you said self-aware, and I think that's what I was trying to wrap my mind around earlier when I was saying it. It's, It's the idea that this is like looking without and looking within at the same time. A lot of these lyrics to this whole album is this same kind of story of, you know, man, you know, this guy, he, he's got to hear it all the time. You know, people coming to him going, dude, you are awesome. Why are you doing this to yourself? You are so talented. You have no idea how easy you got it to come up with the kind of lyrics and the way you sing and the way you deliver the stuff. I mean, you have got it made. Why would you throw it all away for this and not really have a good answer as to why? You know, and that's right. that's kind of a lot of what we're going to hear on this whole thing. And it's you're right, it's terribly sad, you know, but whew, awesome album left in its wake, I suppose. 
Yeah, and, and, and denial is a huge part of ad- addiction. You know what I mean? It's like getting past denial seems to be the biggest step. And the right, fact but that it, he was, this is he, rare because he's not in denial at all. He's putting it right out. There. No, he's like fuck it. Yeah, wow. you guys are one hundred percent right. I am pretty much a loser. Don't listen to me, which comes up in another song. But uh, what? How do you rate this one here out of uh, five? Whatevers. What do you got here? Um, I think in my special grunge rating for this song, I'm going to give this one three cigarettes dipped in fentanyl out of five. <laughs> All right, now on that, this goes a solid five out of five for me. Uh, three yeah. cigarettes dipped in fentanyl. So, yeah, I, I love okay. this tune. Uh, going back and hearing this, it just just that like boom, 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 boom. You just yeah, that is and, pretty damn. Cool. And who doesn't love hearing the early notes of a xylophone banging right away? Right. I mean, it's no nothing but a good time, but you know, yeah. it's a good solid three. Do you think there's even one xylophone in the entire state of Wisconsin? Well, yeah, dude. That's where the Violent Femmes are from. <laughs> oh, that's right. They've got all the xylophones. If Man. these guys had a xylophone on their album, clearly they rented it from Wisconsin. You know, uh, in our in our official re- released conversations, I-, I think I've done pretty good at getting at you. Uh, you are prepared today. You have clearly you are winning at least three to zero on the I'm Minnesota Wisconsin shit talking. Yes, you are. Well, uh, once that's it's the same thing as this album. It's the acceptance of knowing what's going to happen to you when you record <laughs> with Baco. You know, the first time you go in it and go, you know, I'm not going to prepare for all that. You know, all those jabs and stuff. I, I'm sure he'll be a nice guy and not do that to me. <laughs> By the third or fourth time I've recorded with you, I know I better come ready. He's a dick. Fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well done, and much appreciated. Thank you. Uh, Let's get to track two, uh, X-Ray You better leave that in. What's that? You better leave that in. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're kidding. It's all staying in, man. Yeah. (laughs) I know how you edit shows. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, Baco. (laughs) You motherfucker. X-Ray Mind is the second track on the record. got this intro to it that sounds like tribal drums and the kind of time travel or something you know it's it's really weird but then then it turns into kind of this black sabbath style riff which then leads into the first kind of vocal section which reminds me of like a cool alice in chains kind of thing you know the weird thing is let me stop you there because you it was like right when you said black sabbath riff boom light bulb went off 
yeah, my note was that this is kind of the first example where he kind of goes back to kind of that Alice in Chains kind of dual harmony thing. The actual melody is very Sabbathy. Do do the lifestyle win? I mean, I can easily see Ozzy singing that. There's a couple of songs on this album that are like that, you know, but this one is kind of weird because you get that and then it's repeat almost three or four different songs kind of sitting in the same space within a five minute song. You know, okay. it's there's a lot of change ups in this. It's it's a good blend to me of Alliston Chains and Pearl Jam. But my favorite thing about X-Ray Mind is Lane Staley's vocal delivery in the song. Like, so sit back and have an hysterical laugh, you know, stuff yeah. like that, where it's like, wow. Where he just hits that you know? laugh at a little off time thing. Yeah, man, I mm-hmm. love that. You know, the X-Ray Mind is a damn, damn good song. I love it a lot. Uh, again, you're not really going to get too many upbeat, kick-ass rockers out of this. This might be the closest... One of the other ones coming up uh, might be a good example, but th- lyrically, it seems like he's talking about somebody very specific. And because it's, I re- it's got to be about drug dealers. If you really look at them lyrics, it's it's about people that are, you know, telling you, "Yay, hey, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. I'm your friend." But in the meantime, I'm selling you drugs. You well, know, the line, you- line that you were talking about was so sit back and have an, an hysterical laugh at tiny holes. Buy and trade men's souls. It does definitely right. lean to your theory. I yeah. Again, I don't think we're cracking too many mysteries here, but uh, I give this four. I don't know. What, what's your next grunge uh, reference we got? Um, Let's see. I guess I'll give this one four smack dealers wearing supersonics <laughs> gear out of five. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving it four, too. I don't care. Four. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Up next is the first single from the record. And this might be the... I can't remember if this is the only single. This is the only one I remember seeing a video for. Uh, but, of course, the video of uh, included footage of all the members of the band except Lane, which was clearly copped from a, a live performance of, of something. I think, it was, I think I looked up that it's um, – they had that DV or the – it's a DVD now, but a VHS was released uh, somewhere years after the video anyway of them playing at the Moore Theater in Seattle, which apparently is an important place. You can – even when they tried to put a music video together, he just couldn't be you know pulled in enough to be – He's in the bathroom. Still. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and the, the, they're already done editing the video, and he just showed up and went to the bathroom. Um, yeah, but, he uh, showed up, got out of his car, got into the outhouse, didn't come out. I have a lot of thoughts on this song. First of all, it's a great track. Uh, killer vocal, killer lyric, and classic Lane because it feels effortless. But, um, yeah. again, this is, seems to be like... We're just going back. We're going to hit this theme a lot, man. But, you know, it's like he's he's starting to realize that, like, he's. I think the river of deceit is him lying to himself. Like, Oh, totally. You know, and to those around him. My pain is self-chosen. At least so the prophet.
he's a liar who knows he's a liar instead of like just being flat out in denial you know i mean you know the, the well the chorus is the river of deceit pulls down only one direction we flow is down um, but yeah, the line, there's a couple that I could either drown or pull off my skin and swim to shore. And otherwise that just talks about how hard it is to, to break the, you know, the habit. Jesus. I mean, what a weird and beautiful way to, to talk about something so tragic. It's just, it, it seems like he's just, again, just so aware of what, what he's doing to himself. And I'm I can a little either... surprised with you. You know, you're diving right into the the deep details of this song, but you're totally glossing over the fact that this song is the birth of a new genre, country and northwestern music. Grunge tree? Country and northwestern music. <laughs> yeah, it does have a country tinge to it, doesn't it? Man, I don't like this song. I mean, I know really? for a fact it don't wasn't that I saw this video or heard this song and it made me run out to grab the album because it's one of my least favorite. This is such a Pearl Jam song. I mean, the great lyrics are awesome. Lane Staley's awesome. But musically, this is one like, I don't know. With me, Pearl Jam is one of those bands where I like a certain percentage a low percentage, I, I guess, say, of their it songs. <laughs> it's a low percentage. But the songs I like, I really like a lot. But this is one of them Pearl Jam songs. I actually agree that with I you on that, like. by the way. Uh, when they hit, they really hit with me. But that's not a lot of their material. Yeah. And so this one kind of falls into that with me. It's, I don't know, it is a little too country, you know? And what does what country music got to do with Seattle or drugs or anything like that? I don't know. It just, it doesn't, I, I don't know if that makes sense. It really don't, I suppose. But it, it, this song doesn't really fit to me. It doesn't. It doesn't do it for me like a lot of the other songs on the albums. I think I, I um, when I misheard you, I came up with a better term, which is grunge tree. Grunge tree. There you go. Yeah. But God, the opening line when he says "my pain," Jesus, he just delivers that so good. Yeah, and that's again, it calls back to. You can kind of hear the pain in his voice in a lot of these songs, yeah. you know, and. Yeah, I- it's it's so weird. Like you say, you know, I don't want to characterize anybody or group anybody or stereotype anything, but when you think about, like, drug addicts, it's a million excuses. This guy is like, yeah, no, you know, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, they have a song called No Excuses, don't no, they? No pun intended, but no excuses. You know, he's yeah. got none, you know, and he's not hiding it, and he's putting it right out there and... Man, that's really kind of weird, but not a to me this this one don't make my iPod. I don't like this song. Uh, so uh, what, what do you rate it? Uh, one autonomous zone. <laughs> that might be a little too fresh for the grunge oh, scene. Come on. But no, that's it's all good. Uh, I'll give it five autonomous zones. I'm on wow, the opposite end of this. Five? Holy yeah, shit. I love it too, man. Wow. Yeah, it, that that one just doesn't do it for me like a lot of these other songs do. Side one wraps up with the track I'm Above. Yeah. 
this opens up with a very saturated guitar riff intro, but it's cool how they double basically the guitar from there through the whole tune with a clean acoustic, basically in almost hard panned. There's a part in the song where he kind of kicks it up, and it's just that, that, how is that you feeling so uneasy? He wasn't a screamer, you know, in the sense that we think about it, but man, Lane Staley is as a vocalist, when he got aggressive, was one of the best ever. He was so killer at it, but there was, again, this actual line, that that little block there that comes up a couple times in this song, um, it seems like it's something that we hadn't actually heard from him before. It was like this new voice that he was throwing out there. Um, yeah. but mm-hmm. and, and then the, dropping everything down to an acoustic, an acoustic solo and a fairly lengthy one from Mike McCready, I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, that is a weird part of the song because it starts out with this opening riff that I just love. It's like yeah. it's it's like an ACDC riff played at half speed. <laughs> yeah. And it's awesome. It's badass. And so it's got this, you know, just rah, kind of a riff. And then, you know, when it gets down to the solo, then all of a sudden it falls out of that. And all of a sudden, you got like an acoustic guitar solo, and it's like, wow, that's so yeah, weird. right, you know, because yeah. you're not expecting that. Like with the way the guitars are driving, the way they are, you expect them to bust into this like ripping guitar solo, which the guitar solo would be ripping if it was, you know, hard driving a distorted electric guitar. But it's it just falls into this like acoustic ripping guitar solo, but it's so weird because it's like heavy, and then you. You feel like it's about to really kick in, and then it just drops. You know, it's really strange. And this song, this 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 whole song is really weird. It's not like a Pearl Jam song. It's not like an Alice in Chains song. This song is really, really unique. Again, lyrically, it's almost like he's talking to drug dealers again, but this time more from a stance of like, "You're nothing without me." See, you know, and that's not how I took it. I okay. thought this song this song was more probably about the drug and alcohol rehabilitation industry, you know? So you rely on my faith in your kind, or rather oh. continue to pretend that I'm blind, and you say that you made my I made your life a living hell, but yet I still and yet you still let me pay you when I fell. I mean, is it better for them to cure you or is it better for them for is it better for them if you become a return customer? You know, it's like I could see like uh if I you think were you're really angry if you were really angry at Dr. Drew, these are the kind of things you would say <laughs> to him. No doubt. Um what do you rate this one? Um let's see, I'm gonna give this one four free passes to the center of wooden boats. Mm, this one gets five free passes for me. Oh, nice. Just just a quick tease. Does anything remaining on the record get a five? I think four is the highest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got some fives coming up. Well, before we turn the the cassette, before we fast forward to the end of side one and then flip the tape over, uh, or, you know, maybe in your car you have auto reverse, but... uh, Fancy. When grunge broke, so we're talking late 91, early 92, what was your initial reaction when it started becoming clear that this was not just uh, Nirvana, that it was going to be big, that this was something that was going to hit you? Did you like it right away, or were you kind of like, I'm guessing you, my gut feeling is you kind of rejected it? Total rejection, you know, but some of that stuff couldn't be denied, you know. To me, especially looking back, 
you know, and now I can say, hey, rock music is rock music. As long as it's got that sweet distorted guitar to it, I'm probably going to like it. Yeah. But back then, it was such a culture shift, you know, from yeah. what I liked. It was like... You're taking, you're telling me now that all these things that I thought were cool yesterday, all of a sudden I got some kid in my class telling me that ain't cool no more, <laughs> you know, and I would look at this guy and go, wait a minute, you know, a week ago you and I were arguing over who was a better guitar player, Randy Rhodes or Ace Fraley, but now you're telling me they both suck and now you're a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, you know, it's like, what, how, how does this happen? You know, and there was songs by some of these bands I liked, but it was kind of like one of those closeted things where i had pearl jam 10 and i liked some of the songs off of it and i had alice in chains and i loved all of that and Soundgarden was cool but you know some of them bands like stone temple pilots i'd like some of that stuff but you didn't really want to admit it i think the worst <laughs> one was pearl jam because that oh, was like man. the most pre- pretentious of them all because like Pearl Jam fans were the worst, you know, and it wasn't even that Pearl Jam was a terrible band. It was just that their fans were the worst, man. They were the ones that, you know, two months ago were raving about Dr. Feelgood, you know, how much that's the greatest album of all time or a Metallica album or something like that. And then all of a sudden are like, oh, no, that's so last you know last season yeah you know that's that stuff's not cool anymore you know and that's it made me feel good to be able to stand up and say hey i still like poison i still like motley Crue." you know at parties was i real popular when i was in charge of picking <laughs> what was on the stereo no but i didn't care because that made me cool and unique because all of a sudden it was like wow you know I am going I'm going to stick with what I like, you know? I, I'm never gonna turn my back on the music that I like. Even if somebody says, Oh, fa- faster pussycat, oh god, who listens to that? Enough's enough. Oh, give me a break. You know, and I'd hear that stuff all the time from Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Stone Temple Pilot fans. So they made it difficult. The bands, the music, that wasn't hard because I like a lot of it, you know, and just like the bands before them, the Motley Crews, they never came out with you know well i can't say never because some of them did and it has happened but perfect albums are hard to come by so even these bands in this era were coming out with albums that even like we got here today this ain't a perfect album but there's some damn good stuff on it that i like really a lot you know and so to say oh i can't like that because i like this or you shouldn't like that because this is the new thing that always kind of bothered me you know that people would be that way and so then it really kind of gave me a complex of like wow there i'm i'm surrounded by fucking phonies you know <laughs> you're a big and fat I never phony that yeah i'm i'm the real deal i tell you what i like and i'm not ashamed of it and whatever you know and if i like nirvana that's cool too i had bleach on cassette way before anybody oh, else ever knew who nirvana was I, I had no idea i right you know but okay? it wasn't it was something that i went to uh best buy in eau claire wisconsin we didn't have no best buys around us so to go to eau claire and go to the best buy was a treat and i remember that day i bought a suicidal <laughs> tendency cd i bought a guar cd and i had enough money left for a cassette tape and I'd never heard of any of these bands in this rack with these cassette tapes. Let me thought, well, pause you there because there's a there's a very uh, unique reality that you just resonated with me that like you would buy CDs. Th- there was that little transition period where it's like, yeah, you oh, might. Yeah. I do I want this enough to buy the CD? Maybe I should buy the cassette for 
ten dollars instead of the TD for fourteen, uh, and then I'll say if I like it. Or like you said, you get the situation where I have enough money where I can get three CDs and one cassette. Yeah, brilliant. And what really made that tricky was what you had in your car Yeah, was, was the real test. Because I remember going to buy something and being like, well, I've got a CD player at home and I've got a tape deck in my car. Can I wait to get home to listen to this album yeah. or do I need to listen to it as soon as I get to the car? And a lot of times that would influence it too. Oh man, but if if you felt that way, don't you need it on CD? You need it on CD. In the end, I think we all learned you need it on CD. Oh, there are so many times I buy like three CDs and a three-pack of Max L's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I got to get home and dub all these onto a fucking cassette so I can listen to it in my fucking car. Yeah, you damn right. The Bach Cruiser, you, yeah. You like, had to be alive in the grunge era to be able to relate to something like uh, that. The, that Camino ain't having no CD fucking player in it, baby. No, my Ford Fairmont four-door had an eight-track player in it and i thought the cassette adapter was the greatest invention of all time <laughs> oh that was oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah, no shit yeah where the, the struggle was real kids yeah i'm telling uh, you uh but uh, you, you were uh, in america nowadays yeah uh, correct me if i'm wrong you uh you at least spent some time as a tip bar dj yes yes indeed so I think that I, brings us to our next song right well not quite can you do your best uh tip bar dj voice and um, let me see what's a what's a, what was a popular name around that time for just a, a plain Jane, Baco. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, making your way to the stage, fans of flannel and dungarees. Right now, your chance to get up there, put a little greenery on this scenery. Please welcome up next on the stage. You're gonna love her selection. She's got some Nirvana. She's gonna dance to. She's got some screaming trees. She's gonna shake it to for you. You're gonna love it. She's gonna round out her set with them awesome song by mad season ladies and gentlemen please welcome up on stage matilda all right well back <laughs> thank you for that but getting back to uh the whole grunge thing now you, you shared your feelings on what you thought at the time how about now looking back have you changed much rock and roll is rock and roll to me you know yeah. if it's got good guitar to it it's got some powerful vocals some good you know solid bass and drums and you know maybe a ripping guitar solo here and there it's all good to me i love everything as far as rock and hard rock and metal you know i, I dig it all man i got i got no qualms about telling you how much i love mad season or how cool i think soundgarden is or how yep. badass alice in chains is and even how nirvana and pearl jam got a few good songs you know that doesn't bother me at all now right on well uh cheers to you on that well one last thing before we get into side two did grunge kill hair metal uh the record companies that decided, you know, we've cultivated these artists and now they're okay. in demand and they are they need more money than when they were new. Like, so, for example, when a record company signs a band, they're brand new, they, you, get, you take what you get. But right. when you're on your fourth album that is selling and is doing really good, now all of a sudden you demand a whole lot more from that record company. That means that their take has now gotten smaller. So what's the best way to solution this? You cut ties with those artists. You you just huh. cut them loose and you start over again. So now you got new bands you're signing for the first time. Now, when you're signing Nirvana, are you signing them for as much as you just got done signing Tesla for in them years? 
No way, because Tesla was already a proven commodity. So in order to manipulate the market and twist it around, you get MTV on your side, you get the radio stations on your side, and all of a sudden you say, that's not cool anymore, this is cool now. And so it was all a manipulation by the record companies and the powers that be within the music industry that decided to make that change. You always hear the story about Warrant. They're number one. They're awesome. They walk into their record studio. We don't have no posters on the wall. There's a big poster of Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or whoever yeah. it was, you know. And so it was a it was a thing that was orchestrated. So it's not, you know, some people say hair bands killed hair bands, you know, and and grunge killed hair bands, but it was a manipulated thing. So the industry killed the glam rock stuff and ushered in the grunge just the same way many years later they would usher out the grunge and bring in not the many new, the new metal stuff but most of them grunge bands have kind of died out on their own before so they why haven't they done that since new metal there's been like no movement in music since basically Nickelback and Disturbed. It's all right. basically one thing since then. And I'm talking every genre. Country has only just morphed into pop music with a guy twanging on something. But it's you know, it's all it's all kind of heading to where music is not going to be categorized anymore. It's just going to be one little blah with tons of micro categories that only super fans care about. Right, and if you look at it in that respect, like the, the if you go from the change to the change to the change, eventually you get to the point where it's like, well, then why do we even want to pay Disturbed? Why do we even want to pay Nickelback? Yep. We're best off if there's just a constant rotation of one-hit wonders. You and know? I'm saying they, they really haven't done a whole them. bunch oh, of them yeah, okay. making a little bit of money. Well, you're the first uh, grunge conspiracist we've had on the show. Um, so I guess they, that's... It, hey, hey, they're theories until they're proven conspiracy theories. Okay, fair or enough. Something like that. I've definitely heard that before, that like uh, um, uh, MTV, uh, oh, someone from MTV was hired by KNAC to, and they came in and they were only about alternative music and they, they changed everything, and that's why. And that uh, nobody... From a, from a business perspo- perspective, it makes total sense. I don't. I don't buy it because people still have to like it. You know what I mean. People still have to go out and buy it. And there's plenty of examples of, of people are sheep, man. You put something in front of somebody and say, "Hey, you know this thing you love." And I hate to say it because I love my country, you know, and I'm proud to be an American. But man, we are flaky as fuck, you know, when it comes to stuff like that. Because as a majority. I mean, look at. Well, I mean, if you looked at the charts in 2020 and you'd say, "Okay, what what are the big things?" <laughs> These things are terrible. It They're might terrible, we might be terrible. out of our depth talking about current music on the top 40. You know what I mean? Whatever. But uh, I can't imagine it's any good because I haven't heard of any of it, and right. I'm sure, like I don't know, it just it sucks. The music industry sucks. It all started there. Well, let when me started, let me ask you instead this: instead of cultivating, you start manipulating, and that becomes a bad thing. Serious question, because you're basically you're you're slightly more than implying, if not flat out saying that, like like Nevermind took off only because of a sheep mentality. Let's take records that I know you like. Is ACDC's Back in Black not any good? It's just that people think it is, and so no, it's good. Okay, yeah, no, what, what about Guns N' Roses' damn, Appetite for Destruction? Was that not really a, a record that resonated with people, or is it just like no, it all- was. No, it was good. It was really good. Because there's no denying. Back in Black, perfect album. There's not a bad song on it. You know, minus the songs you've heard a million times, you still got to give them their Getting due. Getting sick of something doesn't make it bad. It just means you don't want to hear right. it anymore. 
Exactly. Same thing with the songs on Guns N' Roses. Yeah. The lower tracks are all fantastic. The ones you heard a million times, even My Michelle, or not My Michelle, um, what's a Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. You know, probably the most overplayed song on that album, maybe Welcome to the Jungle. You heard them a million times. You don't necessarily need to hear it again, but there's no denying those are awesome songs. So those albums are fucking awesome, just like Alice in Chains. You know, when that came out, that stuff was on Headbangers Ball. They were promoting it. It yeah. was right along the same lines of everything else that was coming out at that time and could have been, but somewhere somebody drew a line. I don't know who. I guess it was, you know, like I said, the record companies. Well, it makes perfect sense. You know, if you're a business model and you can you can eradicate one product and raise up another one because this first product became too expensive to make, but you can replicate that with a cheaper model, most businesses are going to do that. And this is the music business. And that's how that all went down. I believe it. I have a hard time accepting that because like there's there's records that, that don't really resonate with me and i'll use nevermind as an example that i actually i understand why it did connect with a lot of people and why it did blow up and while it did kind of signal a change probably not in a way that that was anticipated but i think the record companies you're giving them too much credit they they uh they put a lot of effort into shit that that sucks way more than they they deliver on something that actually yeah i guess that makes sense too let's get into side two well if we're going into side two i would say you know you kind of brought it up about me one time working at a strip club okay and this not only is my second favorite song on the entire album but this is a perfect strip club song. Now, a lot of times in a strip club, and I can tell you from experience, most girls go up to three songs. You want the first one to come out to be kicking. You know, that's your kind of, you know, pour some sugar on me or something yep. like that. You know, get out and do the tricks on the pole and swing around and impress everybody. Second song, you bring it down a little bit more and you get, get a little sexy. But that third song has got to be something that's really just dripping groovy. And in your this mind, song, Artificial Red is that song. Artificial Red is one of those songs that is way up there. I mean, talk about it. Sultry, bluesy, groovy, you know, everything's there. If I was there on a Sunday night, which was amateur night, and I had a girl come up and she said, I want to try it. You know, I'm here with my friends. You know, it's all a big dare. I want to try it. I don't know what to dance to. I say, you let me pick your song. It would be something like this. If a girl can't get up on stage and dance sexy to a song like Artificial Red, and it's perfect because you're already in the house of ill repute, you can't do this. If you can't dance to that, then you can't do this. This is a fucking sexy song about heroin. Sometimes I listen to this and think, this song puts me in such a mood that it must be what it's like to do heroin for the first time. Let's get a speedball and head down to your local tip bar. Um, there you go. There is one glaring hole in your theory. What's that? I've paid for lap dances, and lap dances in strip clubs pretty much universally are one song long. And if that song, unedited, is three minutes and ten seconds, you get two minutes and eight seconds of that song. So they can get off your lap and get another 20 bucks from another sucker. This song is already 93 minutes long. There's no way they're, they're playing this in a, in a strip club. So uh, You know, there's there's always the volume fade button on the thing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, You're not even getting started. to the goddamn first at three minutes. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, so you'd, you'd have to do some editing on the front end and, you know, the fade out. So, yeah, you, you're, familiar, you're familiar with the quick edits in the strip clubs, aren't you? 
I am. I definitely am. This was the strip club edit. Get right to the doom, You know, the bass guitar is so powerful in this song. And really, we haven't talked too much about the guy because nobody's ever heard of him before this or I guess after this. But I mean, the bass playing on this whole album and the drumming is really, really good. Now, I have a different feeling on the song. I This is the lowest rated song I have on here. Really? Uh, yeah. See, I... The, the story is, is is that this was literally written while they performed live, and they just kept it. Like, they, they did a few live shows before they did recorded anything. Um, and they were, I think they were called, oh, shit, something like the Gacy Boys or something like that. But, yeah, so this sounds like a song that a band could write on stage. It is just a lazy, predictable jam band bullshit. Uh, the, the, look, the, the playing's fine and everything, but it's boring as hell. And, wow. and, and Mike McCready goes off, uh, yeah. But, but it doesn't really save the song. And I, I actually agree with your strip club theory, though. Like the way you described it and how dancers could use it, I 100. I'm in that environment with you when you when you describe that. So I think you pulled up my rating one point. But before I do that, what what is uh, what is, what is your rating on this one? Oh man, I love this song. I'm gonna have to give it five woohoo's out of five. All right. Well, it gets uh, two and a half woohoos out of me. I originally oh, had a one and a half, but I your can't stri- believe it. Your That's... strip club th- uh, story uh, pulled it up a whole point. So well, I'm glad for that, but I think it could have pulled it up like many points. I think that's an awesome song. Well, the fact that he even I, sings if like if I could only pick two songs off this to put on my iPod, that would have been one of them. Oh, God, this is wasting space in your iPod. Uh, the, he uses House of Ill Repute twice in the lyrics. It is just, <laughs> and the chorus is woohoo. Like it literally sounds like, like they were literally like waiting for the bass player to replace one string, and they did this. Like they just play the, the this lazy blues riff. Do, 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 do. I guess so. sometimes that's where the magic comes from because I freaking love it. I think it's awesome. And, and it's at this point that I need to point out a major error because someone's gonna tell me that was actually the end of side one. Not that it matters too much. We're going track by track, but side two. I got mine on CD, so that don't mean nothing to me. Right, but I'm trying to go old school, so I'm trying to like uh, keep it like you know that uses a little break as side one and side two. I'm on CD too, so next up is Lifeless Dead. <laughs> Yeah. 
could have been done by Alice in Chains, and it would have been a perfect fit on the album Dirt. Absolutely. On this album, as cool as it's been to hear Lane Staley as like a sole vocalist instead of part of a team with Jerry Cantrell, this song would have improved greatly with a shared vocal with Jerry Jerry Cantrell. Um, Man, I like it. You know, it's it's all right, I suppose. Um, some of the it's got some cool guitar stuff going on in the song. You know, and that's something else about this album too, is that Mike McCready really gets to kind of stretch his creativity outside of the confines of Pearl Jam on this album. Because mm-hmm. honestly, from all I've heard from Pearl Jam, this is Mike McCready's masterpiece here. I think as far as his guitar playing. This song, I mean, it's just kind of okay. I mean, it's not great. It's far from my favorite on the album, but it's not bad. Would have been way better as an Alice in Chains song with Jerry Cantrell on it. Listening to Green River made me appreciate Mike McCready's role in that band even more, because Mike McCready was also in Temple of the Dog. Uh, Yeah, and Temple of the Dog is awesome, and Green River kind of sucks. When you bring uh, Mike McCready into anything, it seems like he adds something that doesn't get a lot of credit for it, you know what I mean? Uh, The the opening on this, though, that guitar riff you talked about, I love that pan that they do, the hard pan back and forth on the guitar riff. It is just great. You're not going to get that with a a single speaker Bluetooth thing on your on your patio. You know, you, you really need to either have a headphones or what I would recommend a proper stereo. Even your car stereo will deliver that, like the the back and forth of that. Lifeless dead, that unclean bed. What's the rating system this time? Um, I guess I'm going to give this one two poopy bed sheets. Wow, two poopy bed sheets. Yeah. You know what I think of grunge? Not the great. first thing I think of is uh, poopy bed sheets. Yeah, me too. This one gives me uh I, this one gives me. This one gets three and a half poopy bed sheets from me. Okay. Uh lyrically I mean, I'm not sure It's not terrible, but it's not great, I don't think. Yeah, I'm not even sure what he's singing about in this one. I, I tried to break down the lyrics, but it's probably I it's, just... I think it's just, drugs. Yeah, I was going to say it's drugs. It's drugs. Definitely drugs. And, like, I think probably the, the, the flip side of drugs, you know? Especially, like, I don't know. I've, I knew a dude that did heroin pretty much on the regular. Really? And, and he had two moods. The moods were really, really great and really, really sick. I think this song is about the really, really sick. Well, that leads us up to the next track, I Don't Know Anything. about the very best track on this entire album. Really? Um, now, I, I mentioned it a little bit further back that it seemed like one of the self-aware things with Lane was that that he didn't think like 
people should listen to him. You know what I mean? This song kind of sums that up. It's like, you know, look, I don't know anything. I'm just a drug addict. That's kind of how I took the message here. But it sounds like you, you, you dig this tune. I love this song. Best song on the album, in my opinion. I could totally hear Ozzy era Sabbath doing this song. I mean, it's got such a great heavy riff. It's got really cool drums, especially during the breakdown into that guitar solo. Holy oh, shit, that guitar yeah. solo. Holy shit, that guitar solo. I love it, man. This album is freaking awesome. Oh, I love it a lot. This song sounds more like an Allison Chains tune, the, that guitar riff out there. That, you know, that's probably the closest they come to an Allison Chains guitar riff on this record. Um, but I can see the Sabbath that, thing. You listen to. If you listen to a lot of cla- classic Alice in Chains, you get a lot of that Sabbath feel off of that too, you know. And Absolutely. This, I mean, this I would love to hear Ozzy do a cover of this song. I mean, that would be so cool. Again, the Alice in Chains um, uh, harmony is uh, uh, very much heavy on this one. You're not getting a whole lot of stuff you can really kind of jam to on yeah. this album. A lot of it's very introspective. A lot of stuff will make you sit and think and wonder and, and question your life. But this song is a great one just to, you know, if if I'm listening to, you know, whatever I'm listening to, if I take my iPod and I throw it on the shuffle and what's coming up? Oh, there's a Tora Tora song and, you know, here's a Van Halen song and here's a Kiss song <laughs> and this could go right in there and I'd rock right along with it. The message, though, you like it. Uh, it seems to kind of reject the idea that, that musicians or celebrities matter. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Don't keep us waiting, uh, Mr. Camaro. What's your rating on this one? I love this song so much. I'm going to give this one five kind of peaceful protesters out of five. (laughs) This one gets uh, three and a half peaceful protesters or kind of peaceful protesters out of five. Three and a half? Oh, man. Baco, you're killing me, man. I don't, I mean, look, I only had one below three. So, I mean, and and you bumped it up to a two and a half. Now, we got a few more songs to go. Next up is a song that I I absolutely, to me, it's one of the best on the record, but it's Long Gone Day. Long Gone Day. This back, guy. baby. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be a fan of this dude. But why am I? I don't know. I just there's something about him, kind of like that Lane Staley thing, where it's like yeah. there's something hypnotic about the way that guy sings. That goes for Mark Lanigan too. His voice and the kind of baritone, it almost fits the music better than Lane. But the problem is that if he was writing the lyrics and the melody, it wouldn't be as good. 
Uh, and no, n- not, not a shot against Lane. I would take Lane as a singer over Mark Lanigan every day. But this music almost seems like it was like written for that kind of smoky baritone voice that he has. Mark Lanigan was a guy that I got introduced to by being a fan of the Queens of the Stone Age. You know, he sang songs oh. like autopilot and hanging tree which are amazing songs yep. and i i listen to queens of the stone age and be like wait a minute this is a different singer you know this ain't josh homie singing this song so i'd open up the cd booklet and look at it and be like mark lanigan who the hell's that screaming trees ah oh, screaming trees suck i don't like that and then go back <laughs> and on. listen and then go back and listen to it and be like well, wait a minute you know this is actually pretty damn good you know there are some really good songs on some of them screaming trees albums and this mark lanigan is a really powerful singer this song to me oh man I'm all in up until the saxophone kicks in. Yeah. Golly, keep the jazz out of my rock. It's like it's like putting Kiwi in Coors, man. It's no good. The saxophone thing is probably a weak thing for me on this, too. Uh, but again, the xylophone comes back. There's a fine line in there where you start mixing in other kinds of instruments into your guitar, bass, drums, yeah. and vocals, you know, but... I mean, this, oh no, man, this is a really good song that just gets totally ruined by the saxophone, I think. Yeah, and I, and I love the trade-off between Lane and Mark. You know, we talked about, uh, you called it, uh, uh, what was it, country and northwestern, and I said it was yeah. gr- grunge tree. Grunge tree. This is a uh, heroin beatnik chic. This has got that kind of total, like you know, you're 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 wearing some kind of weird beanie, smoking a skinny cigarette, and drinking coffee, and and of course, you know, you got a speedball with you, but. Give us the rating for Long Gone Day, Mr. Camaro. Oh, man. I love this song really a lot, but the the jazzy shit in there really kind of wrecks it for me. Uh, This is a tough one, but I'm going to go ahead and give it three Seattle native Kenny G's out of Mm. five. Wow, Seattle native Kenny G. Um, You know what? Uh, That sax solo is long enough for me to leave the room and take a piss break. For that, it doesn't get penalized. I give it five uh, Kenny G's. Wow. You clearly have the most unique uh, uh, references so far. You always bring the A-game, Mr. Camaro. Always. Never disappoint. I do what I can. All right. Up next is November Hotel, which is an instrumental. Um, I'll just say, you know, here is where you really hear the band. You talk about the guitar playing of Mike McCready, but let, the drummer especially just delivers on this tune and the bass player too you know this is really you look at like if you could take a band and put them around lane staley and say we want to create this awesome band for this guy yeah i mean you really couldn't go wrong with this i mean yeah it was all coincidence that they met up and everything like the like i said you know you you go to the beautiful state of minnesota to spend a little time in rehabilitation and you meet a new best friend who who also happens to be an awesome guitar or awesome bass player and it all comes together november hotel i mean it's cool you know it's a trippy instrumental there's some really badass guitars in it and everything but i mean it is just a instrumental i'm gonna go ahead and give this one one unused hairbrush Wow, one lowest rating so far. Now, when we say bass player and drummer, let's mention their names. We got John Baker Saunders on bass, and of course the drummer Barrett Martin. These guys don't really get a lot of mention, you know. This the two superstars, the guy from Alice in Chains, the guy from Pearl Jam, but nobody exactly. really knows nothing about these other dudes. 
no, top end musicians on their own right. They definitely deliver on this record, and this song proves it. They were fitting the groove and matching the music, which is what you want your rhythm section to do. As much as I like to make fun of drummers and bass players, uh, these guys fucking deliver. And um, yeah. yeah, this song, the bass groove on it is killer. And yeah, the drumming is just, I mean, it's just awesome on this one. I mean, it, and it's tight. You know what I mean? It's just, just so good. But it is still just an instrumental, which is why it only gets three and a half. What was the rating? Uh, you know, you kind of, yeah, I hate to rate it so low just because it's an instrumental. And we have been singing the praises of Lane Staley as if this were a Lane Staley solo album this whole time. So maybe give the band a little more credit because they are fucking awesome. I'm going to go ahead and give actually jump this up one and give it two unused hairbrushes. Three and a half for me. The album closes. This is basically another uh, instrumental. I don't know why they don't mention it. Uh, the lyric sheets. Here's all the lyrics. <laughs> uh, I looked this up. This is so funny. Uh, we're all alone. And then That's it. repeat. I'm actually I have a theory here. You know, you, you dropped your whole uh, music industry conspiracy. Here's mine. Uh-huh. Lane Staley just couldn't. <laughs> he was done. They're like, but we need two more songs, and that are these last two tracks on the record. Fine, and, then just and- slide the microphone under the bathroom door, <laughs> and I will kick it back out when I'm done. Hey, <laughs> we're I, all alone. My, my theory goes deeper than that. These are just like outtakes of vocals from elsewhere that they didn't use. They, they didn't like, even bother like including him in and on it. It's like They tricked him into doing some warm-ups and recorded it. There we go. Yeah, so something like that. Uh, yeah, musically, yeah, you know what? Uh, it's probably you're probably hearing it right now if you're listening, but it's just not anything that matters. Like the other instrumental, at least, at least it sounded like they they tried to write an instrumental track. This sounds like they just tried to fill out the uh, a tenth song. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You, there's really Five not stars. a lot redeeming about this one. I'll go ahead and give this one one hypodermic space needle. Yeah, I joked about the five stars. This one gets one from me, too. Uh, this was not necessary. This could be a nine-track record. I, I'll give them the last instrumental. This one just seemed kind of pointless. I don't know. Did you check out any of the other songs that made it onto like the, the remastered thing that came out later, the other Mark Lanigan songs? I did, yeah, the deluxe edition. Um, uh, I like. I really like the song, uh, I think it was called Locomotive. Yep. It's pretty damn cool. I didn't really care for the other ones. But you know what I really, really liked was around this time they did a song. I forget what movie it was for, but I think they did it for a soundtrack. It was a John Lennon cover song. That's still with Lane. Yeah. far out. Yeah, that one's with Lane. And it is unbelievable. I've never heard the original, but there is something crazy and hypnotic about Mad Season. Yeah. Lane Staley vocals doing a cover of a John Lennon tune that's really kind of obscure. And it's something that you got to listen to. Like, if you've never heard it before, it's called I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. There we go. This song is, there's something really weird and off about this song, but it's the kind of thing you listen to and go, what? Wait a minute. Play that again. What? No, play that again. It's really far out cool. Let me ask you something. Have you seen the footage of them from the live at the moor back when this was, you know, 
it was around the time of this album. It was after the album, but they, that they recorded it and released it. But uh, have you have you watched it or seen any, any of the footage of that? I've got the VHS tape, but it's been forever since I've seen it. Wow, you actually own it, huh? Uh, yeah, it's it's here in the studio. Here's a thought I have about a lot of these grunge bands. I, as much as you you might uh, have your your criticisms of Pearl Jam's music. They're the one band that live, I think, when you're at a concert, you actually kind of can, can get into the moment. I, I've seen all these bands. Uh, I'm talking mainly the... Uh, I haven't seen Nirvana, so maybe I, I should clarify that. But Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, respectively, and, and then watching that that uh, footage of this, they all kind of are boring live. As well as they might play, they just don't really do a lot for you, especially Alice in Chains now. I saw Alice in Chains on the Clash of the Titans tour in 1991, and that would have been just as you know, facelift was starting to break. But and they were they were pretty cool then, and they sounded great. Just seeing what the, a lot of these grunge bands, it seems like they did literally kind of adopt to that like don't be a star, just stare at the floor thing. I, I it, Pearl Jam, I'm sorry, but the, the, visually they there's energy on that stage. I, these other bands, I, Soundgarden, I saw them about five days before our Cornell died. Oh wow! They sounded killer, but they did not go over well. They were the headliner on day two of a festival, and they had a great set list, and and it, it was everything you would want. But they just they didn't move. There was no energy. It just didn't connect with the audience. You know what I mean? And I see that with this. Now, with Mad Season, that kind of makes sense. This is very subdued music. You, you almost expect them all to be sitting on stools. Right. You wouldn't expect them to come out on stage and play this album in its entirety and be jumping around like they're Brett Michaels or something. And that's where I was going doing with a, this. Doing a little I, Paul Stanley dance or something. I think there's a reason that, uh, at least to a certain level, Almost no matter from from the highest to the highest, we're talking Poison and Molly Crew down to bands like Bang Tango and TNT. They can still find some sort of audience or venue, or you know, like even a Ron Keel, you know, friend of the show, uh, it, on Monsters of Rock Cruise, those kind of things. You don't see that kind of movement. You know, these grunge bands, the ones that stick around, typically are the headliner kind of guys, like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. If Nirvana was still doing it, they'd be one of those two. And Pearl Jam. The, that next tier and lower and lower, there's nothing for them. Yeah. I mean, the, there's no demand to see a Gin Blossoms show. You know what I mean? Nobody wants a- to go on the Monsters of Grunge cruise because it's just a garbage <laughs> ship. There's fucking goddamn heroin needles everywhere. You fucking, right. you, you're going up bags, to the buffet and you're flip flop. You accidentally over D trying to get some scrambled eggs in front of uh, uh, Tommy from Three Sides of the Coin, but you get you accidentally OD from a heroin needle that's left on the floor. Uh, but <laughs> it hits you in the foot. But here's my theory, and it came up on a previous uh, uh, episode that the snark and the, the 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 darkness of the music it just can't you can't go back and celebrate after like you because like if the core audience was like seventeen to twenty five we'll say right those okay. people are you know early forties to their mid fifties now they've had kids they've had jobs and now they're on a cruise they don't want to go back and go. Ah, yeah. fucking play me some down in a hole. I mean, look, guys like you and I probably would because we like the music. Right. But I think as far a as lot going of going and having a good time. 
But but I think a lot of like these uh, like um, like the M three festival, the Monster Rock Cruise. The reason those things exist is not so much because the people who go think, oh, Bang Tango actually was a very underrated band. They go because they're just going to have a fucking blast, right. and they want to get away and have. And that's what that music represents to them in their past. This music re- represents being going. Everything's fucked. I hate fucking everything. Why vote? <laughs> And as good as music might be, it's hard in your mid-40s to get away from like, uh, finally, a vacation away from the kids. Let's go get depressed. Right. (laughs) Sounds like we're on the same page. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's kind of even to me goes back to the time when it really kind of ramped up and became a thing was, you know, why do I want to feel bad? Why do I want to why do I want to dress in, you know, these brown colors? You know, why yeah. my favorite bands were all about having a good time, you know, and, and or at least promoting having a good time. My favorite bands were Kiss, you know? It was Kiss, and when Paul Stanley gets out on stage and gives you one of his stage raps, it makes you feel good, you know? People over there, let me hear you! People over there, let me hear you! Wild animals, make some noise! Oh, excuse me, I forgot. Hold on. People in the middle, let me hear you. When Kurt Cobain gets in one of them stage raps, it's like, oh, man, you know, that ain't this. I don't know what he said, but it wasn't fun, you know. And I know this is going to sound funny. I know you're going to laugh at me, (laughs) but Tough came out with a song called American Hair Band. Trains back, so on with the show. A metal hill, then dressed to thrill. I'm an SMF with the looks to kill. I rock and roll, the long hair is back. And I grew up singing strutter and back in black. I'm going back to 89. I went platinum zero times. And we got that at the radio station, and it literally changed everything overnight. I mean, this is no exaggeration. This is for real. Like, you went one day when it's like, oh, you know, fuck Molly Crew. I like Pearl Jam. But then that song came out, and they actually let us play it on the radio. And then it was like the next thing I knew, like, people were calling the radio station and requesting like Motley Crue and ACDC and Guns N' Roses and bands like that. It was like it took that song for people to hear it and go, you know what? All these bands that this song is talking about were actually really damn cool. Yeah. And I know in the worldwide big giant picture of it, that song had nothing to do with, you know, the fact that that era of hard rock survived when the era of grunge really didn't. Yeah, it didn't, but no. honestly, from what I've seen and from the reaction of the people hearing that song... It's a brilliant song, by the way. It's it's a parody of the Kid Rock song, which is uh, stealing from Metallica. Right. But... Uh, which is it's not even really more stealing if they stole from Metallica first, right? Awesome, let's make it. Let's get into some of the closing thoughts on the record. Now, 
Um, one of the things I want to definitely get into is kind of like where Lane Staley. Let's talk about him a little bit because it, he died in 2002. Um, he was found two weeks after he died. They, they estimate he basically died, and no one knew who had heard from him. And then they do kind of a one of those wellness checks with the police, and they find so his body sad, dead. Man, so and sad, the, so revered, so loved, and it, it took two weeks for somebody to find his body. Man, yeah, Bummer. it. It, it just shows you like how far gone and how long this was going on. Um, and because I don't, I'm not one of those people who blames people around him. Like, why didn't you do something sooner? That kind of thing. He was in this spiral long before this. And at a certain point, you know, there's only so much you can do. Right. You know what I mean? He had a roommate. There were some stories that came up that, that, that I wanted to get into a little bit. And one was that like, uh, he told a former roommate of his Morgan Gallagher, that he was going to be trying out for audio slave when they were looking for a singer. Oh, wow. The author of that book I mentioned, uh, he fleshed, out, fleshed it out a little bit. And we know addicts tend to embellish stuff. And this might have been basically Lane Staley just trying to like put on a face. You know what I mean? Like he probably was interested, but he was like, the reason he never did it, according to the person he told, was that he had to get clean first and, and he just struggled at doing that. But, right. Uh, he would have to leave the apartment and actually go talk to somebody about doing it. Well, I don't want to leave the apartment. I don't even want to leave the bathroom. Yeah, and, and, and like the, the stories is that like he had this killer TV and he would literally just do smack and play video games all day. So, so he bought this apartment about five years before he died. And that, that seems to be the basically living in that apartment was basically the last five years of his life were, were pretty much went down this path once he set himself up to basically kind of be in this place. And uh, early on when he bought it, he brought Toby right in to set up a uh, a little home recording studio, and according to both Toby and Jerry Cantrell, like he would actually record quite a bunch of demos. I'm just curious if those are out there. Yeah, the, man, that's first thing I think of. Where is that stuff? Is some old crackhead sitting on it somewhere, or is that stuff all once once he died, they came and threw everything away as they do in apartments when somebody right. passes away? You know, if somebody don't claim the stuff, it all gets thrown in the trash. Gotta imagine that's probably where it is, but that sucks so bad. The rumor is his mom has it, and it's probably never yeah. coming out. There really isn't much left in the Allison Chains vault, according to Jerry Cantrell, that has uh, Lane singing on it that they haven't put out there. There's stories that he was losing his teeth. I saw, I looked it up during all this stuff. There's a picture that's supposedly the last actually known photo that's been out there that people can see. His mom, this is from 1998. Now, his mom supposedly has one from around early 2002 where he's like holding his nephew Oscar. But uh, the, the picture from 1998, he has very long hair and he looks like a person who has no teeth. You know how like your, your mouth kind of goes into, kind of got that thing going. So, right, yeah. It seemed to add some validity to that. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's definitely out there. You're bringing me down, man. This whole thing is bringing me down. This album is everything. I got to go listen to some Poison. Yeah, well, before you do that, I'm going to bring you down a little further. I don't because you said you didn't know the history of this record. Well, um, the bass player uh, Saunders he actually OD'd in 1999, three years before Lane, and there just seems to be a lot of death connected to the people involved in this record, from Lane to John Baker Saunders, and, and actually preceding this record, uh, uh, Lane's ex-fiance is how it was put. So they must have broke up. She died of an overdose before that, and then you. You toss in all the other casualties that we know about, Scott Weiland, Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, and Mike Starr. It just seems like an overwhelming dark shadow of grunge 
is definitely the uh, heroin and uh, drug overdoses of that era. So it, it's sad, and I think I brought it up in this record largely because I, I think Alice in Chains of Dirt, which is on the list, this album, and uh, the J- Jerry Cantrell solo album, uh, Degradation Trip, those three for sure, they almost... They're the soundtrack for the demise of so many of these people. It's amazing that so much beautiful music could come from you know it's such a dark environment. It's not amazing that people from Seattle are depressed and want to kill themselves, though. There's your rivalry shot. Sticking it back to the folks of Seattle. That's such a Turning Minnesota it around. I just do. got done getting all sad and dark, and boom, suck it, Seattle. Wow. Yeah. Got to bring it back up somehow. You're right, man. This this whole thing is a bummer. You know, it's a great album. It's got Again, some... that's why they don't have a cruise. They have a sinking ship. It's so sad to look back on it as the history of what that was, you know. So I should be laughing. I should be saying, ha, ha, ha. You know, these guys are all dead and gone. And guess what? You know, Motley Crue's still around. And guess what? Stevie Rochelle's still alive, and guess what? You know, Kiss is still around. You know, I should be, I should be doing that. But and I Vince can't. Neil is round. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and well, supposedly healthy, in shape now. Very, very healthy looking. You know, but I mean, it's 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 one of them things. Like I said, you know, at the time it was like, oh yeah. Fuck them hair bands. It's grunge. You know, I'm like, man, that's not cool. You know, last yeah. week you loved these bands and don't call them hair bands. They're glam rock bands or hard metal, you know, hard rock and metal glam bands or whatever you want to call them. But it was like the turnaround, you know, and now I should laugh, you know, like in this, just like in the song American Hair Band when Stevie Rochelle says, Kurt Cobain is gone, but I'm back. Yes. Yeah. It's really, really true when he says that because these bands that were about having fun and being cool, they survived. The bands that were like, let's be sad, let's be depressed, and and take it however you want to. You know, both of them are gimmicks, totally. You oh, know, sure. you can you can take poison and say, hey, they just dressed up like what they thought was going to get them to the next level. Well, guess what? Everything that came after Nirvana did the same thing too. It was all a gimmick, just like you know, gangster rappers that really weren't from the mm-hmm. hard streets of Compton. You know, Ice it's, it's no different. It's all an image, you know. So, a flannel shirt and some dots. Martins and some dirty ass pants is the same thing as teased up hair, a leather jacket, and a backwards cap. You know, it's it's all the same. It's all a gimmick. So when these bands, just like the hair bands, even those bands got to the point where they lived the gimmick so much that it burnt out. Well, yeah. when the grunge bands lived the gimmick so much to the point where the where it burnt out. It left half of them dead. The first band I tried out for in the Twin Cities was me and another guitar player. And this guy said, like, um, he moved out to Seattle. So this is 1996, to paint the picture. He had just moved back from Seattle, where he moved to in 1994. But he came back, and the band that we were trying out for was definitely not for me. They were kind of like almost a uh, Dangerous Toys crossed with Trickster kind of thing. So okay. I, I, after we talked, I wasn't even interested in joining this band. But the, the point being is that's the kind of music this guy was like. And he was like, yeah, I went out there, but everybody's just like, yeah, it's all about grunge and stuff. You fucking think? So this poser is trying to tell these guys, I went out there, but nobody wanted to do hair metal anymore. I'm like, yeah, it was 1994, and you went to fucking Seattle. 
Well, you, and then but then you look at it and you say, well, who's the posers? You look at Kiss in the early days for always. That guy Kiss, was the poser. Kiss is the perfect example. They call Peter Chris. What's what's the first thing they ask him? I mean, for many years after that, even how long is your hair? You know, this mm. poor guy goes out to Seattle and he calls up on a gig and they want to know how bad is your breath. Well, actually, my breath is really good, and my hair is long. What, and I, what I'm saying like, is, no thanks. Th- you this don't guy was, the gimmick. I guarantee this guy was was all into the slaughter and all that stuff of the late ninety or the, the early nineties, all that stuff. All that last generation hair metal. I heard him play, so I know his style. And then when grunge broke, he moved to Seattle to suddenly become a guy who stares at the floor and wears flannel. You know what I mean? It wasn't uh, so real he to him. changed his gimmick to And now he with- came back, and now that he's sitting in front of people who think that's a joke, he suddenly changes his tune to fit that. I don't care. It doesn't matter that much. Like, like I said, nobody fucking it's cares. It's all very poser-ish. Yeah, to me, being authentic does matter when it comes to music. And I think that really comes back to this album because that mm-hmm. is the word of the day when we're talking about this album, Mad Season, the album above. The word of the day is, it's not heroin. Let's not concentrate on that. Let's concentrate on a word, and that word, Baco said it, is authentic. And yep. that's exactly what this album is. And that's what makes this album so freaking great. It's authentic as hell. Damn straight, man. And as far as your list goes, I put this at number five on the all-time grunge rock albums. Right on. I had this at number seven. So we both bumped it up quite a bit from the uh, Rolling Stone placement. Well, tell us about Decibel Geek. Where can people hear more about I know you can promote your damn show. On the internet. It's there. It's Decibel Geek. <laughs> You, you probably, the- if you're listening to this, you probably already know because, you know, our good friends Baco and LC, they're always talking up the Decibel Geek podcast, how awesome we are. Yeah. And you know what? It's about time I think I just break down and agree with them. We are pretty awesome. We we do what we can. We just love to support hard rock and classic metal music. And, you know, like I said earlier, we, we get some accolades for it once in a while. So number one hard rock and metal podcast in the world that's Cobras and Fire, but if you also like that kind of stuff, <laughs> check out Decibel Geek too. Well, me personally, me personally, when I listen to your show, I find it hilarious. <laughs> as I find out as I listen to your show. When do you funny. laugh first? Before or after you hear your own laugh, laugh at something. Uh, it's usually after. Because I've got the kind of laugh you need to laugh along with, even though whatever's going on may not be that funny. <laughs> I see the marketing strategy here. Hey, what did you think about me using you guys laugh not too long ago? <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus you didn't Christ. You that one, did you? Oh, I did. I, I, did yeah. I, I, I bitched about it online and said you crossed the line there. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, no. Here, uh, here's the trick with that. You got to save it. You got to save it and savor it and only use it for special moments. You, you've then, used it before. Yeah, it's special yeah. once before. Yeah, so this that was the opportunity that I had to bring it back out of retirement. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Of course, we'd be giant hypocrites to take any offense to stuff like that. The good thing is that we both realized that. So yeah, of course, it was that was great. Uh, if anything, it was an honor uh, to be just included on your show. So. Well, and speaking of honors, you know, and you asked me to come on the show and talk about Mad Season, and I really, truly do like this album and respect it a lot. But really, truly, honestly, I got to let you in on a secret, Baco. Uh Uh-oh. 
I'm Aaron fucking Camaro, and I came on your grunge show, and I talked about tough. Yeah. Mm, nice. Yeah. That's what yeah, it was you, all you, about. And, and actually, you made it topical. It actually fit. Dang right. It always does. Just barely, <laughs> but it fits. I don't ever doubt your ability to to bring tough into a conversation. <laughs> You slide a little ugly kid Joe in there once in a while, too. You yeah, never know. You know it, man. This was a lot of fun, brother. Always a pleasure, Aaron. You know I love you. And uh, getting together and talk with you is always good. And this time, finally, I think um, you gave more than you got as far as the bullshit uh, shit talk. So, like I said, I, I think I scored it at uh, three to zero earlier. I'm going to go four to one for a final score. Well, you know, it's it's always fun to spend time with you, Loose Cannon. <laughs> love, love Cobras and Fire. But, I mean, really, I mean, to come on this show and talk about grunge, whatever. All right, never mind. Someone's got to tell me that. Come on, how can, we're offending a person that needs to be offended. Okay, but, uh, I'm but boy, you. that might be borderline. Yeah, I guess uh, I'll, I'll probably take that out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward. And take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 
8 billion miles driven by Leaf owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.